Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 29, the book of Matthew, chapter 8, the second continuation. Well, we took another extensive detour last week in our continuing study of Matthew chapter 8. It was in order to explore some of the early church fathers, and that in order to trace their viewpoint on the all-important matter of believers in Christ having an obligation to follow or not to follow the Law of Moses. And what we found was that the very earliest church father of record, which is Clement of Rome, was discipled at the knee of both Peter and Paul, and actually served with Paul for a time. He was so involved with the church at Corinth that following Paul's death, Clement wrote letters, theologians call them epistles, to the congregation there. Now clearly Clement was seen as Paul's successor, and he had authority. And as history shows, Clement also became part of the church government in Rome. Now, Clement's recorded position was that Gentiles as well as Jews who follow Messiah are to obey the Torah, the Law of Moses. He knows nothing of the anti-Jewish, anti-Law of Moses fiction that was eventually developed by the Gentile church leadership that is sometimes called the Law of Jesus or the Law of God. This pro-Law of Moses position was not only recorded by Clement in one of his, in his one surviving epistle, but also was repeated later by the church fathers Papias and Polycarp. And what we find is that after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, after Gentiles took control of the church starting around 100 AD, the church fathers naturally, as a result of their esteemed positions, they were the ones who advocated these various forms of anti-law and anti-Semitism. At first rather mildly, and then more militantly, until we arrive at the time of Justin Martyr in the mid-2nd century. And Justin Martyr was openly and forcefully anti-law, anti-Jew, and in his famous treatise called A Dialogue with Trifo, he laid out his argument that Christians should not follow the law or do anything that Jews do, feasts, Sabbath, day of worship, etc. Because the Jews were the Christ killers, and because God had given them over to evil. In fact, Justin Martyr said that the law of Moses itself was a negative institution imposed upon the Israelites as they left Egypt as a punishment due to their wickedness. How about that for a point of view? So from this point forward, the church was nearly entirely Gentile in government and congregation, and so in the early 300s, at the Council of Nicaea, headed up by Emperor Constantine, the church laid down a set of authoritative faith doctrines that were at that time called canons, that embedded the anti-Jewish, anti-Law of Moses as a principal foundation of Christianity that has been embraced and led us astray ever since. Without apology or hesitation, I stand opposed to this view and mindset, because it is also anti-Jesus 
even if it's done out of the same ignorance I had as a younger man. After all, Jesus could not have made it more clear in His Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5, as He issued a command, along with a stern warning as to the consequences, that all of His followers were to obey the law. And further, that no one should ever construe anything He said that day, or ever, as meaning that He had abolished the law of Moses, changed it in the slightest way, nor has He created a new law of Jesus. But Christianity in general has followed the lead of Justin Martyr. And nearly all the Gentile church fathers that succeeded him, and as a result have disobeyed Yeshua's explicit instruction, thus sadly have steered the institutional church dangerously off course. Now, here at Seed of Abraham Ministries Torah class, we're going to continue to endeavor to teach and to follow the law of Moses as Yeshua instructed us to do. Now, that's as much as possible in the 21st century and in forms that represent modern circumstances and realities. And you know, we plead with our brothers and sisters of the faith to reconsider, to repent, to reconnect with the entire Bible. And to once again embrace full obedience to God's laws and commandments. I mean, we acknowledge that we do not ourselves do it perfectly. Wherever it is clearly impractical or impossible to follow a commandment to the letter, due to the circumstances of our modern times, including the lack, by the way, of a temple and a priesthood in Jerusalem, we shall follow the law of Moses in the Spirit. It's intended, guided by the Holy Spirit that Christ Himself sent to us. At the same time, <laughs> we pray for God's forgiveness when we fail. Now, these issues of the relevance of the law and of the totally Jewish character and culture of Yeshua are assumed all throughout Matthew's Gospel. Well, next we discuss the matter of the Roman centurion who came to Jesus to ask that he heal the soldier's house slave. And after that, we addressed Yeshua walking a few steps from the synagogue, synagogue in Capernaum to Peter's house, whether his mother in law lay ill with a fever. Messiah merely took her hand and instantly healed her. We also spent a bit of time discussing that Peter's house has been found in Capernaum and has been excavated and preserved such that visitors to the Sea of Galilee can see it. Having been there many times, I can say that for me personally it is a most moving and affirming experience. Well, let's continue with Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 16. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's on page 1232. 1, 2, 3, 2. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16. When evening came, many people held in the power of demons were brought to him. He expelled the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. This was done to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Yeshiao, Isaiah. He himself took our weaknesses and bore our diseases. And when Yeshua saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. A Torah teacher approached him and said to him, Rabbi, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Yeshua said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds flying about have nests, but the Son of Man has no home of his own. 
another of the Talmudim said to him, Sir, first let me go and bury my father. But Yeshua replied, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. He boarded the boat and his Talmudim, his disciples, followed. Then without warning, a furious storm arose on the lake so that waves were sweeping over the boat. But Yeshua was sleeping. So they came and they roused him, saying, Sir, help, we're about to die. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? So little trust you have. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and there was a dead calm. The men were astounded, and they asked, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? When Yeshua arrived at the other side of the lake in the Gadarenes territory, there came out of the burial caves two men controlled by demons, so violent that no one dared travel on that road. And they screamed, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Now some distance from them a large herd of pigs was feeding. And the demons begged him, If you are going to drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, he told them. So they came out, went to the pigs, whereupon the entire herd rushed down the hillside into the lake and drowned. The swineherds fled, went off to the town. They told the whole story, including what had happened to the demonized men. At this, the whole town came out to meet Yeshua. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their district. Well, here we find Yeshua doing what Jewish holy men, Sadakim, do. They heal. And in the first 15 verses, we found him healing a pretty interesting array of people. A person with Sarat, that is a spiritually caused skin disease, then a Roman soldier's house slave, and then a woman, although he of course knew her well. Now what's the common theme among all these folks? They not only do not represent Jewish religious hierarchy, they are also the powerless. We need to be paying attention starting now as to the position that Yeshua is putting Himself in. He stands in obvious opposition to the Jewish leadership while standing with the common man. I think it would be fair to say that he quite naturally identifies with regular Jewish folk because that is not only his own background, but also he sees the injustice built in to first century Jewish society. And considering the things he's doing and the following he's gaining, without permission, by the way, or authority granted from either the priestly leadership or the synagogue leadership, you know, he's setting sail on a collision course with both of these groups. And it bears repeating, because otherwise we lose all context for what's happening. In no way do those following Jesus around, begging Him to heal them or heal a family member, think of Him as divine or as their prophesied Messiah. He indeed has dropped some abstract hints of His true mission and identity that hardly anyone present could have caught. In fact, as we move through Matthew, we're going to find that at this point those closest to Him, His family, His twelve disciples, did not think of Him as any more than a righteous holy man. John the Baptist thought of Him as something special, someone who was indeed prophesied about, but even he was not entirely certain 
that Yeshua was the Messiah because up to now Yeshua had not plainly said so. Thus the hordes who came to see Christ and He spoke to in those, those hills above the Sea of Galilee, they came down primarily seeking healing from all manner of afflictions. Those who followed Him all the way down the mountain, those who joined the crowd at Capernaum, also came for what? Healing. So far we have seen Christ heal physical ailments. Now in verse 16 we see Him heal an evil spiritual ailment, demon possession. Now we must also understand that while the Jewish people were so very glad, very excited for this new holy man, Jesus, to have arrived, what He was doing was not so different from what they had seen before from other famous holy men who were miracle healers like Honi the circle drawer and then a few years later Hanina ben Doza, right? both of whom ministered prior to Christ's birth. These holy men were considered ultra-pious, so their words and their prayers were much coveted by the people. In other words, Yeshua's miracle healings had a precedent. So these miracles were actually expected of Him since He had proved Himself to be a holy man. And in none of the Gospel accounts, by the way, did He ever deny it. Had He not done the miracles, He would not have been so sought after. So Yeshua the miracle worker drew people to Him, even some Gentiles, like moths to a flame. Jesus turned no one away and He effortlessly, effortlessly healed all who came to Him. It has been pointed out to me that we must not overlook that Yeshua's healing and His Word, His instruction, are organically tied together. Because Moses is the model after which Matthew patterns Christ, it's informative then to read a pertinent comment made by Philo. In his Vetus Moses, chapter 1, Philo says this, Moses exemplified his philosophical creed by his daily actions. His words expressed his feelings and his actions accorded with his words, so that speech and life were in harmony and thus through their mutual agreement were found to make melody together as on a musical instrument. See, Although this was a statement about Moses, it would be difficult to find anything more lofty and true in the character and the deeds of Christ. So we must not read past Matthew recording that Christ healed the demon-possessed and all who came to Him with but a word, just by a word. In ancient times, you see, speech was seen as something great and mysterious. Words were thought to possess actual, tangible power. In our day, we don't think of words that way. So when Yeshua merely spoke, and the evil spirit left that possessed man. It held a different connotation for those Jews that witnessed it than how we think of it now. So Matthew then goes on to say from his believing Jewish mindset that what Yeshua was doing was in fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 4. Matthew says, He Himself took our weaknesses and bore our diseases. See, now this is a loosely fashioned quote from Isaiah, not an exact one. Nonetheless, Bible scholars don't doubt that this is meant to be understood as a quote from Isaiah 53. So, Matthew, able to see from the perspective of hindsight, tells us 
that Yeshua is the subject of Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Now I've mentioned on a few occasions that it was Jewish practice when referring to Scripture not to quote long sections of it, but only short passages. See, the short passages were not meant to just be taken alone, but rather they were to direct the reader to the entire section of the Holy Scripture that was pertinent. Since in those times there were no such things as chapters and verses or page numbers, then there really was no other way for them to communicate the reference to a Scripture passage. The intent was for the reader to recognize the passage and then consult what was written surrounding it. Well, I'm not going to do an extensive study of Isaiah 52 and 53. These are short chapters. We need to understand what Matthew was telling us by directing us there. So we're going to read them completely as would have studious Jews from Yeshua's time. So turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to read chapters 52 and 53 in their entirety. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to be starting on page 520. 520. Isaiah chapter 52, starting at verse 1. We're going to continue right all the way through chapter 53 to the end. Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with your strength. Dress in your splendid garments. Yerushalayim, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will enter you no more. Shake off the dust, arise, be enthroned, Yerushalayim. Loosen the chains on your neck, captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Adonai, you were sold for nothing, you will be redeemed without money. For thus says Adonai Elohim, long ago my people went down to Egypt to live there as aliens, and Asher oppressed them for no reason. So now, what should I do here? asked Adonai, since my people were carried off for nothing. Their oppressors are howling, says Adonai, and my name is always being insulted daily. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, on that day they will know that I, the one speaking, here I am. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, proclaiming shalom, bringing good news of good things, announcing salvation and saying to Zion, Your God is King. Listen, your watchmen are raising their voices, shouting for joy together, for they will see before their own eyes Adonai returning to Zion. Break out into joy, sing together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for Adonai has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Adonai has bared his holy arm in the sight of every nation, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Leave, leave, get out of there. Don't touch anything unclean. Get out from inside it and be clean, you who carry Adonai's temple equipment. You need not leave in haste. You do not have to flee, for Adonai will go ahead of you, and the God of Israel will also be behind you. See how my servant will succeed. He will be raised up, exalted, highly honored, just as many were appalled at him because he was so disfigured that he didn't even seem human and simply no longer looked like a man. So now he will startle many nations. Because of him, kings will be speechless, for they will see what they had not been told. They will ponder things they had never heard. Moving on to chapter 53. Now, who believes our report? 
To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? For before him he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He was not well formed or especially handsome. We saw him, but his appearance didn't attract us. People despised, they avoided him. A man of pains, well acquainted with illness. Like someone from whom people turned their faces, he was despised. We didn't value him. In fact, it was our diseases he bore, it was our pains from which he suffered. Yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell on him. And by his bruises, we are healed. We all, like sheep, went astray. We turned each one to his own way. Yet Adonai laid on him the guilt of all of us. Though mistreated, he was submissive. He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before its shearers, he didn't open his mouth. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away. And none of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people who deserved the punishment themselves. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was with a rich man. Although he had done no violence, said nothing deceptive, yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. And if he does, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and at his hand Adonai's desire will be accomplished. After this ordeal, he will see satisfaction. By, no, by His knowing pain and sacrifice, My righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their sins that He suffers. Therefore I will assign Him a share with the great. He will divide the spoil with the mighty, for having exposed Himself to death and being counted among the sinners, while actually bearing the sin of many in interceding for the offenders. That's pretty powerful stuff. These two chapters, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, I think represent one of the most remarkable messianic prophecies in the Bible. And you know, it's been taught thusly in Christendom since the first Jewish believers emerged. Matthew essentially identifies Yeshua as the suffering servant, which is one and the same as his being God's servant. So Matthew is connecting Christ's works of miracles with him being God's servant. Clearly, the crowds following Yeshua did not make that same connection, and Judaism in general to this day does not either. Now, Judaism either denies the messianic nature of Isaiah's words, or they say this doesn't pertain to Yeshua of Nazareth. Now, especially the Orthodox will claim that Judaism does not, never has seen Isaiah 52 and 53 as referring to anything but Israel herself. That is, Israel, the people, are the suffering servant, not a Messiah. But in fact, a number of rabbis from the past have recognized the messianic nature of these words and they've written about it. There are many, many I could draw from, but here's a small sample. In Midrash Tehillim, 
Psalm 16.5, we read this portion. Rabbi Levi taught in the name of Rabbi Edi. Suffering is divided into three portions. One, the patriarchs and the generations of men took. The generation that lived in the time of Hadrian's persecution took. And one, the Lord Messiah will take. Benishai commented on the Talmudic passage Sanhedrin 93b in the same way. Through afflictions, the Messiah rises to great spiritual heights. In addition, his afflictions atone for Israel so that they can continue to live and perform mitzvot. And since without the Messiah, these mitzvot, these commands, these these deeds, good deeds could not have been done, he is a partner in Israel's mitzvot. Thus, because he loaded him up with afflictions like millstones, he, meaning God, loaded him up with mitzvot as well. The Messiah is Israel's guarantor. He has undertaken suffering to atone for Israel's sins in order to shorten the exile. Even the Zohar, which is the book of foundational faith statements of mystical Jewish Kabbalah in Shemot section 2, speaks about the same attributes of Messiah and it largely mirrors Christianity's doctrine on the matter. Now, this rather unexpected comment you find in the Zohar about Isaiah 53 is recorded like this. When the Messiah hears of the great suffering of Israel and their dispersion, and of the wicked among them who seek not to know their master, he weeps aloud on account of those wicked ones amongst them, as it is written. But he was wounded because of our transgressions, he was crushed because of our inequities. The souls will then return to their place. The Messiah on his part enters a certain hall in the Garden of Eden called the Hall of the Afflicted. And there he calls for all the diseases and pains and sufferings of Israel, bidding them settle on himself, which they do. And were it not that he thus eases the burden from Israel, taking it upon himself, no one could endure the suffering meted out to Israel in expiation on account of their neglect of the Torah. So Scripture says, surely our diseases he did bear, etc. A similar function was performed by Rabbi Eliezer here on earth. For indeed, beyond number are the chastisements awaiting every man daily for the neglect of the Torah, all of which descended into the world to the time when the Torah was given. As long as Israel were in the Holy Land, by means of temple service and sacrifices, they averted all evil diseases and afflictions from the world. Now it is the Messiah who is the means of averting them from mankind until the time when a man quits this world and receives his punishment. That's pretty unexpected from the Zohar. So the claims, hear this please, the claims many within Judaism make that Judaism does not and never has recognized Isaiah 52 and 53 as speaking of the Messiah are simply not accurate. Yet we must understand that the reason behind this false claim is because of their hatred of Christianity and the strange type of unbiblical, unhistorical Jesus that Christians have come to worship. It's no different than the false false claim by Christianity that in the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua abolished the Torah and the prophets, and later that Paul denounced the Torah and told Jews and Gentiles alike that it was an ugly, faulty covenant that they were to disavow and disobey. See, these false claims are made because of the writings 
of the early church fathers who fomented hatred of the Jews, and thus an insistence that all things Jewish, especially the law, must be denied and shunned in time, even the entire Old Testament. Now verse 18 explains that when Yeshua saw the crowds, He gave orders to His disciples to take Him to the other side of the lake. Yeshua was still at Capernaum, and some of His disciples would have had their fishing boats there, so a boat was pretty easily obtained. Now, why did Yeshua instruct His disciples to leave Capernaum? Did the crowds grow so large as to become unruly? Were the numbers so great that there was just no end to the healings requested? Was He exhausted? Yes, Jesus was a human. He got just as tired and worn out as we can. Was it simply time to take His miracle healing ministry somewhere else? We don't know. But we do know that it was Yeshua's idea to leave. He commanded His disciples to get a boat and take Him to the other side of the lake. So where was the other side of the lake? A few verses later, we're told, He arrived in the territory of the Gadarenes. Now, Capernaum was in the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee, and the territory of the Gadarenes was at the southeast part of the sea, about a 45 degree angle across the lake, so the journey was around 12 miles. But before he boarded the boat, a scribe approached him. And while the complete Jewish Bible correctly calls this person a Torah teacher, the official position was called scribe. And indeed, they were Torah teachers. Even better, they were Tanakh teachers, Old Testament teachers, if you would, who operated within the synagogue system. That is, they had no attachment to the temple or to the priesthood. The scribe calls Jesus Didaskalos uh, in, in, in Greek, which translates to teacher in English. Now, because this scribe was almost certainly a Pharisee, it would have been in this context that he was speaking to Christ. So the, uh, the uh, King James Version rightly translates the Greek to master, because a run-of-the-mill teacher was not the scribe's intent when he addressed Yeshua. Rather, he sees him as having authority, and thus we find the term rabbi used in the complete Jewish Bible. Rabbi means great one, and it fits well with the scene taking place here. The scribe asks if he can accompany Yeshua. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, to follow meant to come under the authority of someone. See, this was the standard way that religious Jews chose a rabbi, a master, to sit under and be discipled during that era, as opposed to the way that Yeshua, the master, chose his disciples. Now, Yeshua responded to the scribe, I think, in a rather unexpected way. He quotes an ancient folk expression about foxes having holes to live in and birds having nests, but then he adds that the Son of Man has no home of his own. Now, clearly, the meaning is that. Yeshua cannot promise the scribe a place to live or food to eat because Yeshua lives day to day at the hospitality of others. Having said he has no home, he doesn't mean that fully literally. His own mother Miriam was still living, and as far as we know, she was still living in her own home, the same one in Nazareth at 
that her husband Joseph brought her into when they were first married. So, Yeshua of course could go there. But at this point in His ministry, Yeshua was an itinerant preacher and healer. What is most important about this statement is Christ calling Himself Son of Man. Now, Son of Man was a favorite title that Yeshua regularly called Himself. Clearly, Jesus had much respect for the prophet Daniel, as in Matthew chapter 4, He speaks of Him. And a prophecy Daniel made concerned a Son of Man. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14 we read, I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a Son of Man. And He approached the Ancient One and was led into His presence, and to Him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, because Yeshua now identifies Himself as Daniel's Son of Man, we understand something that Daniel and his readers couldn't have. You see, the term Son of Man, which was written down in the book of of Daniel in in Aramaic, is Barnosh. Its Hebrew equivalent is Ben-Adam. And while it literally, literally is translated to English as Son of Man, what it meant to the ancients was human being. That's what it meant. However, now in hindsight, we understand that we can view Daniel's words in both the Peshat sense and in the Ramez sense. That is, the Peshat is that someone like a Son of Man means someone like a human being. However, in the Ramez, it hints at something more. Son of Man now becomes a title for the Messiah, a human being that is indeed a man, but more than a man. Son of Man is a name Yeshua called Himself more than 80 times in the New Testament. 80 times. But He also used the term Son of God. Now, the standard interpretation of these two titles is that Son of Man speaks of Christ's humanity and Son of God speaks of His divinity. However, in reality, it's the reverse. Son of God was a term used in the Bible for Israelite kings long before it was used of Christ. And there was no thought that these kings were deity. The subject is fascinating. Son of Man versus Son of God, but it's very expensive, uh, very extensive. I spoke on it in depth in my Torah class study of Daniel, lessons 19 and 20. So, if you want to know more, you can go there for, for further study. Nonetheless, clearly, at least clearly to Matthew, Christ did not mean to say that this human being himself had no home of his own. Rather, the mysterious person that Daniel spoke about was Yeshua of Nazareth as the Messiah. And here he was, standing there, in person, on the Sea of Galilee, publicly claiming Daniel's Son of Man title for himself. Well, now in verse 21. Yet another man comes forward and he wants to go with Christ. This man's already a disciple, a follower, but not one of the original twelve. So it's not somebody that's making an entirely new or sudden decision. His request to do something first before he follows Christ reminds us, reminds us of Elijah and Elisha. In 1 Kings 19:20. He, Elisha, left the oxen, 
ran after Eliel, that's Elijah, and said, please let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, then I'll follow you. But we mustn't take this too far because Elijah gave permission for Elisha to indeed do as he asked, while Yeshua did the opposite. So what are we to make of Christ's response to this disciple's request to go home and bury his father? That is, saying to him, ah, let the dead bury the dead. See, some see this as very harsh. Others see it as breaking more than one Torah command. I mean, first, to honor your parents was involved in this. But also, the mandatory requirement to bury the deceased immediately and then go into seven days of mourning. All kinds of solutions to this have been proposed, including that it is a Hebrew or Aramaic expression that has been mangled or obscured by translating it to Greek. In the end, it does mean something, and I think clearly it means that following Yeshua in faith trumps everything. But it certainly can't mean to break the law of Moses in order to do it. My suggestion is that indeed, it indeed sounded harsh to that disciple and probably to the crowd that was surrounding Christ. But then again, think about what he would say a bit later that then lands in a similar manner upon a listener. If you flipped to Matthew 10, 37, you hear, whoever loves his father or mother more than he loves me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than he loves me is not worthy of me. Now, as severe as that sounds, Luke's version is even stronger. And he puts the same thought in the negative. In Luke 14, 26, he says, if someone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life besides, he can't be my Talmud, my disciple. See, I believe what we have here in Matthew 8 is this. We must not think that here stands a Jewish son in Capernaum talking with Yeshua after leaving his father at home a corpse and still not buried. That would have been the height of breaking both biblical law and Jewish tradition. I mean, while there were several nuances in tradition about burying the dead, it is unthinkable that a son would leave his dead father to go hear a person speak, even if it was a holy man, and then return later to handle the burial. Death and burial were very serious matters that preempted nearly everything. The matter of familial involvement could not be subcontracted out except in the rarest of circumstances. On the flip side, however, is that if a parent were very elderly or sickly, his son might not wish to venture far, because his duty to be present for the burial and all of its arrangements was a deeply embedded virtue in Jewish culture. It wasn't like today when because of embalmment, a burial can be postponed for a while to make it more convenient for all family members to arrive and attend. So while in no way can I be certain, these realities to me add up to the disciples' father not actually being dead, at least not yet, but rather the son wanting to go back home and enjoy just a little more of the good life until his father did eventually pass, and the disciple was finally ready to follow the Messiah as his true master, but on his own timetable and terms. To me, this is where the lesson lies.
See, otherwise we have a, a cranky Jesus telling this young man that he must forego standard Jewish burial practice for, practices for his father, or that the spiritually dead ought to bury the physically dead, thus putting this disciple in an impossible bind through no fault of his own. So how do we measure Yeshua's responses to these two followers? How does this fit with the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah that He came to suffer terribly and unselfishly for the sake of sinful humanity? You know, we find a, a, a super compassionate holy man on the one hand, but then a rather abrupt, no-nonsense master on the other. Here's what we have to recognize about our Savior. He's a complex being. Our Lord is greatly merciful and loving, just as His Father is, ready to comfort us. Yet, He is not one whose good will towards men can be trifled with can't be taken for granted or under the assumption that it will be given under any circumstance. He indeed is Savior, but He's also Lord and King. And therefore, while He gives love, He expects to receive love. And like His Father, the love He seeks amounts to obedience. How many thousands, perhaps millions of people have heard the gospel message and said they weren't ready to accept it yet? As much as not, it's not because they didn't suspect it was true, it's that they understood enough to know that they couldn't continue the lifestyle they were leading if they turned away from their sins and turned their life over to Yeshua. You know, people ask me all the time, why do human beings sin and even continue to knowing better? And I tell them, it's because we enjoy it. We enjoy it. We like the sinful things we do. Otherwise, we'd be pretty quick to give them up. How many thousands of millions of people will live in eternal darkness because they assumed they had a lot more time to live? Eh, maybe an old age. Finally turn to Christ, only to die suddenly before they make that decision. How many more had their hearts moved by hearing the truth, but didn't make thinking about it? acting upon it a priority. Instead, their thoughts turned back to everyday life, its temptations, its challenges, never to think again seriously about salvation. See, the issue Jesus was addressing with the disciple who wanted to go back home until his father died was allegiance and priorities. Allegiance and priorities the potential followers of His, all of us, must necessarily face. See, for in the biblical realm, love is closely linked to allegiance and loyalty. Allegiance and loyalty establish the order of our priorities. See, remember what Christ said earlier in the hills above the lake in Matthew 6.24, No one can be a slave to two masters, for he will either hate the first and love the second, or scorn the second and be loyal to the first. You can't be a slave to both God and money. Thus, after saying it as a principle, Yeshua has now demonstrated it in practice in dealing with the scribe and the potential follower as he was about to board a fishing boat to cross the Sea of 
Galilee. Well, in verse 23, Yeshua is now on the boat. He's heading for Gadara with several disciples on board. Suddenly a storm blows up. The sea begins to churn. Dangerous waves start lashing at this small boat he's in. The disciples are certain their death's imminent and they begin to panic. Now these boats are meant for the calm waters of the lake. They are not designed to fight against this kind of severe weather. And as the disciples, who are fishermen, used to being on the lake, become alarmed, we find Yeshua was fast asleep. Now for those who've toured Israel with me, you will have visited the Jesus Boat Museum at the Nof Gennesar Hotel in Israel. They have an actual fishing boat made in that same period, which was buried in the mud of the seashore and discovered by a man who lived on the associated kibbutz. Viewing it helps us understand how small and puny a boat like this would have been against a raging sea. But it also makes us ask, (laughs) how in the world could Jesus sleep? I mean, I'm such a crowded, uncomfortable craft let alone in the midst of it becoming tossed about in a storm. And yes, these sorts of storms do blow in suddenly and they can be quite perilous. I mean, I was out on the lake uh, on one of the rather large tourist boats that can hold maybe up to 100 people or so when some foul weather just suddenly blew in. We were in no danger, but the swells and the waves formed in just minutes. I mean, it was uncomfortable enough that the trip had to be cut a little shorter, risk having some pretty seasick seasick passengers to contend with. I mean, I could immediately imagine what it must have been like for that little fishing boat that had just set sail from Capernaum as it bobbed around on those churning waters. Now, no doubt this story was recorded in all three Synoptic Gospels because of its close association with another prophet that Yeshua identified Himself with. Jonah. Christ said in Matthew 12.40, For just as Jonah Jonah, was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the depths of the earth. Now notice how He manages to connect not one, but two prophets and prophecies to Himself that of Jonah and of Daniel. Now, the subject of Matthew 12.40 was, of course, Jesus speaking about the burial cave that He would repose in after His crucifixion. However, note the similarity between Jonah's Mediterranean Sea adventure and Christ's on the Sea of Galilee in our story of Matthew chapter 8. Listen listen to this in Jonah, starting at verse 1. Jonah 1.1 The word of Adonai came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, set out for the great city of Nineveh, Nineveh, and proclaim it that their wickedness has come to my attention. But Jonah, in order to get away from Adonai, prepared to escape to Tarshish. He went down to Jaffa, Jaffa, found a ship headed for Tarshish, paid the fare, went aboard, intending to travel with them to Tarshish just to get away from Adonai. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) However, Adonai let loose over the sea a violent wind, which created such stormy conditions that the ship threatened to break to pieces, and the sailors were frightened, and they each cried out to his God. They threw cargo overboard to make the ship easier for them to control. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down below into the hold where he lay fast asleep. And the ship's captain found him and said to him, What do you mean by sleeping? Get up! Call on your God! Maybe that God will remember us and we won't die. Well, there's a lot more 
to be gleaned from the story of the tempest on the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to explore that the next time we meet.